Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You know, as much as we may long to see the Father, the Father longs to be with us. You know, today we're going to be moving into the Gospel of Matthew. We've been there for a number of months. We just looked at the greatest sermon ever preached, and I realized it only took probably Jesus an hour to preach it. It took me about six months. And so that's the level of teaching that you're going to get at Bergen Park Church, quite a bit below Jesus, but hopefully in tune with what Jesus is saying. And we're going to walk and continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew, because see, the, the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus goes up the mountain, he teaches with authority. He reveals what life with God looks like. Or he talks really about what it looks like, but what does it actually look like as you kind of enter down the mountain and you actually encounter people? What does it look like to live the Christian life out? That's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. In chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches this kingdom manifesto. What does it mean to follow the king who is Jesus and to live in his kingdom? And then in chapters 8 and 9, what we have are nine miracles. Now realize, Matthew only gives us Nine miracles. John says if every miracle that Jesus performed was written in the New Testament, we'd have too big a book. We couldn't possibly digest it. So realize if Matthew's choosing nine, there's a reason why he chooses these nine to reveal something about the nature of this king and his kingdom. Because when Jesus came, he said, listen, the kingdom of God is here, repent. Turn, believe the good news. The question is, what kind of king is this? History hasn't seen a lot of good kings and certainly not a lot of good kingdoms. What is the manifestation? What does God's kingdom look like? How does he use his authority? When we study the miracles of Jesus, we're truly understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. That that as we look at this in Matthew chapter eight, we're gonna look at verses one to 17. We're gonna get a big picture We're not going to dive in deep into each individual story. We're rather going to ask the question, what do the miracles of Jesus teach us about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish? And there are three big ideas that, as I studied this week, really stood out to me in terms of the miracles that Jesus performed. That one, his miracles reveal his authority. Because see, Jesus taught as one who has authority. Well, how do you know he has authority? He could just be arrogant. He could just say, hey, listen, you gotta do what I say, and if you don't do what I say, it's like building your life on the sand. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. And so Jesus backs up the authority of his teaching with the authority of his actions. You see what he says and what he does. But see, second, not only does his miracles reveal his authority, it reveals what his kingdom is like. And listen to this, and who his kingdom is for. And you should be shocked. We're not, but when you see a leper and a centurion and this kind woman who cares for others being cared for, Jesus is revealing the kinds of people his kingdom is for. And to his original listeners and to those that read Matthew for the first time, chapter eight in some ways is more shocking than chapters five, six, and seven because of whom the kingdom shows up among. It reveals his authority, it reveals his kingdom, and then finally it shows us the Father's heart and that we should be bold 
and approaching the Father. So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter eight, we're gonna start in verse one as Matthew begins to unpack. We're gonna look at three of these nine miracles. In Matthew chapter eight, we're gonna pick it up verses one to 17. And so when he came down the mountain from preaching the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, here's the first person to come across. A leper came to him and he knelt before him saying, Lord, if you're willing, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, here's the second individual he comes upon, a centurion, a soldier, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and guess what? He goes. Another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who are following his disciples, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I tell you, many are gonna come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. That place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, listen, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose, and she began to serve him. And that evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with the word, healing all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, meet us. Here, Father, we we saying, Lord, we want to see you, but Father, we want to hear from you too. Through the power of the Spirit, would you illuminate your word to speak to where we are? Maybe we struggle with these miracle stories and we we wrestle with the reality of these words, whether it truly happened in this way. Lord, meet us. Would you teach us? And Father, would you cause us to see the radical grace, the radical realignment of your kingdom and the people that you'd encounter Jesus in the way that you healed them, revealing your grace, your mercy, your love, because the agenda you had in Matthew's gospel is the agenda you want for us. And so, Father, help us to live this out and understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus taught, when you go back to the end of chapter seven, it says he taught not as the scribes or the Pharisees. How did the scribes and Pharisees taught? Just like I am. They had to reference someone else. They had to use somebody else's PhD, somebody else's master, somebody else's authority. They had to footnote and say, listen, this is what the experts say, and here's what I'm teaching you. Jesus didn't teach like that. He taught as one who had authority, and he said to the crowds, listen, 
if you don't build your life on my words, you're foolish. Now, if Jesus had said, if you don't build your life on the Old Testament, you're foolish, we could understand that. If you don't build your life on the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they saw those words as authoritative, but Jesus said, no, listen, if you don't build your life on my teaching, you're like a man who has built his house on the sand. You're foolish. Because my words, they correspond to reality in life, and to ignore reality is to ignore reality to your own peril. Jesus taught as one who had authority, and how do we know that his authority was real? Because it's one thing to say, my words are true, and if you do not believe me, you're foolish. It's another to show up and to that authority to be revealed and see in the miracles of Jesus, they're not a naked display of his power. He could have impressed people in much more miraculous ways than this. No, the miracles of Jesus, they reveal that what he said was true and that he is somebody with authority and not just with any authority, he has all authority. When you survey, I really encourage you to read chapters eight and nine over this week and notice the kinds of miracles. Because realize, again, Matthew's picking from thousands of miracles and he's taking these nine and he's putting them together for a reason. To show us the width and the breadth of Jesus' authority. That he heals a leper. He touches him. He also touches, I think my microphone's messed up. Hold on. Sorry about that. Talk amongst yourselves for a minute. <laughs> Hopefully that's going to work. Did you guys hear that popping? Okay, a little ADD there. We're back, we're back. He heals a man, a man who is paralyzed. And not only that, he's on, he's on this lake and a storm comes up and he has this power and authority to say, hey, listen, storm, shut up. Be silent, be still. He has all authority, but we have to trust that authority. And part of what Matthew's doing is, is taking us to a place where he's asking us, do you trust his authority? Do you tr are you willing to surrender to his teaching, to his authority? Because see, in, in this second miracle story with this centurion, we see the power of Jesus' authority that he can simply speak a word and it's done. You see, in, in verse five, this centurion comes to Jesus. Now, that's bold. That's bold. Because this centurion is the worst of the worst. You don't become a centurion. A centurion was one who is a soldier over 100 soldiers. You don't become a centurion by being nice. You become a centurion because you're effective. And the Romans don't care how you come about your effectiveness as long as it's done. Have you worked for a boss like that? Don't really care how it gets done. Don't care just as long as it gets done. Centurions become centurions because they're willing to take whatever steps is necessary to enforce the authority of Rome. This is not a good man. And yet he has the audacity to come to Jesus because he knows Jesus has the authority to do something. And in verse five, we see this play out. The centurion, actually verse six, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. 
And so even though he's ruthless, he's still human. Even ruthless people care about someone. And he cares enough to bring this concern to Jesus. And I cannot imagine how shocked this man would have been or the crowds would have been to hear in verse 7, okay, sure, I'll come and heal him. And you notice in verse 8, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This worked too, this is too easy. You cannot come into my house. I am not worthy, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But if you say the word, listen, my servant will be healed. What's going on? Why is this story here? Because this is someone who understands how authority works. And he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, the reason I came to you is you're the only one I know who has authority over sickness. And I know your word gets things done. Now, how do I know that? Because see, my word, it gets things done. I say something to someone and they do it. And if you say the word, it will be done. Because Jesus, I know you have authority because I know who you are. And verse 10 Notice, he marveled. Who is this guy? I don't know if you realize this, Jesus isn't impressed with us often, but he loves us. <laughs> I mean, the gospels are not encouraging when it comes to human nature. They're honest. And often to his own disciples, Jesus is saying, come on guys, get it together. He marvels. And he says, I have not imagined or seen faith like this in my disciples or in Israel or in any religious leader. I've not seen faith like this. Why? What was it about his faith? What was his faith centered in? See, he wasn't coming to Jesus as a teacher. He was coming to Jesus and his faith was in Jesus' authority. You have the authority over sickness and I trust you. Now listen, this man was still a mess. He was a moral mess. This is not an example in some way of how you get it right. But because his faith was in the object, which is Jesus, Jesus through his authority healed his servant. Because what Jesus is revealing is the authority that he has, and faith in Jesus is faith in his authority over all things. See, if we have faith in Jesus, it's not just faith in Jesus, Jesus fix this or fix that. No, it's faith in Jesus, say, you're Lord. You're Lord over my thought life, over my sexuality, over my family, over my money. You're Lord over all things, and true faith in Jesus is to surrender to Jesus. See, often we want God to do something for us. And often as a pastor, usually I'm sitting with somebody and there's a challenge in a marriage or relationship. There's a challenge in terms of the future and sickness. And they're asking God to do something in their life. But here's what we often fail to do is in asking God to do something, we fail to surrender to his authority. That if I'm coming to you to accomplish this, then why am I not surrendering my thought life to you? I believe that you have all authority and yet I'm not living according to how you've called me to live. Do you see the disconnect that we often have as we come to Jesus? Faith is faith in who he is and he's revealing I have authority. 
So listen, will you trust his authority in your relationships? That it's better to forgive. Why? He has authority. He understands how it works. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because he has authority over tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough cares of its own. Today has enough cares of its own. Let tomorrow take care. Do you come under the authority of Jesus and say, listen, I'm going to surrender my worry to you because you're the only one big enough to carry it. When he's revealing these miracles, he's showing us the authority that he has. The question is, do we trust him with our lives? Are we willing to believe who he says he is? We want God to do things for us, but are we willing to trust him and to surrender our lives to him? And see, what that means, often does it come to him and say, you know what, listen, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm struggling. I wanna surrender to you, but Lord, I need to be led to you. I need to know you. Do you know Jesus' authority? And then second, are you marveling at the way his kingdom gets revealed? Because everybody who's watching this take place, and here's a leper that's showing up and a centurion and then Peter's mother-in-law, they're surprised at the recipients of these miracles. They may not be so much surprised by the miracles, though they're shocking. I think the reason these stories were repeated were because of the people that these miracles happened to. Because more than anyone else, these first three miracles are given to the outsiders, the outcasts. To those who are not allowed to worship in the temple. The temple was the center of God's presence. And yet these three individuals in one way were unclean, but also were not allowed to come into the fullness of God's presence. And the first three miracles are given to those who are the furthest from God moving back in. And so let's jump back in and begin to uncover what these miracles reveal about the God's kingdom agenda. Because see, if Jesus wanted to just show up and prove his authority, he could have been like Thor, Captain Marvel. He could have been like Loki. He could have had that kind of power that's used just to impress. And in fact, that's exactly what Satan tempted him to do. Do you know that? Chapter four. Jesus, wouldn't it be cool if you went up on top of the temple just jump off, right? Show them your power. Because see, the angels are gonna catch you and everyone's gonna be like, whoa! Why don't you take a rock? How about this, Jesus? Take a rock. Just turn it into bread. Because see, that's gonna, what do people do with power? They use it to get something for themselves to impress others. Jesus rejects it. He doesn't use power for power's sake. He uses power to heal that which sin has destroyed. Every single miracle of Jesus is reversing what sin has brought into the world. It, Jesus in every miracle is, is speaking to decay and disease and brokenness and he's bringing things right. He's bringing us back to what the world will look like when he comes back or what the world was like before sin entered the world. Jesus is restoring all things and it starts with this, leper, with this leper. This leper comes to him, and see, leprosy in the New Testament and in the Old Testament was, 
was a skin condition, sometimes Hansen's disease, which we think of, which is the rotting of your extremities because your nerve endings, I think, I'm not an expert on this, it's just, it's terrible, begin to rot and you start to die from the outside and eventually you get sepsis or, and you begin to die. And that's Hansen's disease. Often we associate with lepr leprosy, but realize how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, have eczema or a skin disease. And what do we do when we have a skin disease? What do we do? We just wear a long sleeve shirt. We cover it. But see, in that day, any skin disease was seen all as being unclean, which means you had to be removed from the community because these skin diseases were seen as very contagious. And so someone with leprosy, with this condition, what they would have to do is represent on the outside of the body what was going on on the inside of the body, and so they would kind of mess up their hair. It didn't matter if you're poor or you're rich. You had to look a certain way to let everybody else know there's something wrong with me. And so they would dishevel their hair. They would actually wear clothes that were kind of ratty and torn, not because they didn't have clothes, but to warn everyone else, I'm unclean. And many people in that culture would assume that person must have done something wrong to deserve this. So somebody with leprosy is an outcast. There is shame that is placed on them, whether it was their parents or themselves. Somebody must have done something for God to punish you in this way. And they were rejected from culture and society and every time they came near a community of people, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. And yet Jesus heals him. But notice in verse two, and this is, you may not notice this unless you spend a little time looking. He doesn't come to Jesus in verse two and say, can you cleanse me? You notice what he says? Will you? What does that reveal? doesn't believe he deserves it because that is what life has taught him. I am unworthy to be healed. He doesn't doubt Jesus' authority. I know you can. The question is, will you? I wonder how many of us have felt the same way. We have felt so unclean because of what we have done or what has been done to us, we wonder, will you cleanse me? Am I too far gone? Because see, that's what everyone believed. That's what the culture believed. Dang right, you're too far gone. You bet you're too far gone. And we will remind you every time we see you that you are too far gone. The culture had said, absolutely, Jesus said, there's no way. God's grace extends beyond our imagination to people that we couldn't imagine him touching and yet he does. And that also extends to us. He is willing and he cleanses him. And then we have this next story, not a leper but a centurion. And again, this is not somebody who has simply messed up a few times, a decent human being. This is a centurion. And in terms of the people that Jesus was with, which were the Hebrew people, the Israelites, he was an oppressor. He was violent. He was an occupying force in Israel using violence and oppression against 
these people. And Jesus, who is the Messiah to the Israelites, what should his attitude be towards their political enemies? This is the height of political enemy. Not just somebody who's against you, but somebody who's literally destroying your country, destroying your heritage, destroying what you value, destroying your businesses and your schools, and bringing immorality and brokenness into your culture. How should God respond to someone like that? I mean, certainly there are limits to God's grace, isn't there? It can't come to someone like this, and yet the centurion comes, and there seems to be this urgency in his voice where he's begging Jesus to respond and he says again in verse 6 Lord my servant is paralyzed he's suffering terribly there is a brokenness there's a weakness in this man who's lived his life in strength and Jesus says I'm going to come and sir the centurion says no way because he understands the culture I don't think this is a moral distinction see in terms of society the centurion had a greater title he had more respect in terms of society. He was higher. He's not saying you can't come because you're too good for me. He's saying, I know in this culture, if you show up in my home, that'll communicate the wrong thing. That's too liberal. That's too progressive. I even recognize that. Just say the word. What is he revealing? Remember when he said, love your enemies? Yeah, he meant it. Do good to those who harm you? Could you imagine the crowd watching this oppressor of the people being, you're gonna respond to him. Wait a minute. And, and this isn't perfect faith, but it was perfect faith in Jesus' authority. We don't know. Maybe this man's life was changed, but I imagine he was still a centurion. And yet because of the object of his faith, which is Jesus, Jesus as the object who has authority heals this man's servant. To reveal what? The extent of God's grace. This is what Jesus' kingdom is about. is about taking those who are on the edges of society, who we believe are too far from God, and bringing them in, and then warning us, do not judge lest ye be judged. You notice that in verses 11 and 12? He gets a little serious. And he says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. Who's that? That's the centurion. He's coming from Rome. He's coming from Greece. And they're going to recline. Imagine this. We got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, that is like the big three of Israel. So here we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Fred. I guess his name. Frederick, the centurion. No. No. That is not possible for that man to be right along Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because see, the people that should be there are the sons of the kingdom. The Israelites. We have your word. We have your temple. We earned this. This is ours. It doesn't belong to you. You're too far from God. And yet it says in verse 12, the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out because they do not have the humility to admit their need of grace. Do you see that? God opposes one kind of person, only one. Not the immoral, not the violent, the proud. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Blessed are those who recognize the depths of their need for God. Hey, and hopefully their life begins to change. There needs to be a transformation as you come under God's authority. But we see in this story that God's authority is available even to someone like this. Because God is serious when he says, love your enemy, he demonstrates it. And then finally, we have the story of Peter's mother-in-law. Peter probably got a lot of points for bringing Jesus home. I mean, that, that was a good moment for him and his mother-in-law. I can imagine that would be great for me. Probably bring me up a few notches. But notice who this woman is. She's a servant. I mean, what does she do immediately after she's healed? The very thing she was doing before she was healed. She was a servant. But see, this woman, she had a fever, and a fever caused you to become unclean. See, as we back out from these stories, here's what I want you to start. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine right now we're in Jerusalem, okay? Now, it's kind of rough. I know Jerusalem's not in a good time at this, and we need to be praying for Israel and for Gaza and Pakistan and, and all of those areas. Anyways, it's a different story, but you get it. Um, we're in Jerusalem, and this is the temple. So imagine we're in the Holy of Holies. This is the inner sanctum where God's presence dwells. Where would these people be? See, if you go back in the Old Testament, a leper would be on I-70. That's about as close as he could get to the temple and to God's people. Why? Because they were not allowed in the city limits. And so they would be allowed on I-70 maybe to yell or to scream from there, but they wouldn't be allowed to enter into the community. That's how far they were seen from the presence of God. Now this centurion, he's a little bit closer. He at least gets in the parking lot. Because see, if this is the temple and that's the outer court outside of the outside wall, it's called the court of Gentiles. And see, he would be able to hang out. Maybe we'll open the door, I guess we could, and allow him to listen in. And that's about as close to the presence of God he would get. And women, listen, you're welcome to the foyer. Because see, women weren't valued as highly in Jewish culture. What is Jesus doing in this story? He's breaking down walls every time he heals. And he says, do not doubt that my grace is available to all. Church, who are we keeping out in the parking lot? You know, in the early 90s as a pastor, as the AIDS epidemic began to cover the United States and the world, one of the last communities to respond was the church because we saw it as an R-rated issue. And even heard at times people saying, well, maybe that population deserves it. Maybe because of how they've lived, it's just punishment. How does Jesus respond? You know, Jesus doesn't respond giving us what we deserve. You see, the centurion's no different than me. I mean, I'd like to make him. I do have Disney princess theology, which always puts me on a pedestal when it comes to reading scripture. And I don't see myself in the leper. I don't see myself, right? Don't you read the Bible that way? How often do you see yourself as Judas? <laughs> Never. Because we all have Disney princess theology. We always see ourselves in a better light than we are. But see, this is us. He's talking about us. And he's saying, what walls are you constructing? Who are you keeping out? It is the kindness of God that leads. Come on now. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Who is it as the church that we say, no, no, that's too far? 
our political enemies. This centurion was certainly on the wrong side politically, literally tearing down a nation that the people loved, and yet Jesus was willing to express love towards him. This leper who was morally an outcast, seen as disgusting, too far from the grace of God, must have done something to deserve this. Who is it that we construct walls and we say, you know what? The Sermon on the Mount stops with you. You know why? Not because we don't understand Jesus' teaching. We don't believe his authority. And we can say, no. No. I'm not gonna love that person. I'm not gonna care for that human being. See, we stop where grace proceeds. Realize what Jesus is doing in this story. See, the last group were the women and he was bringing them in. He said, guys, this is who the kingdom belongs to. Church, that's our agenda in the world. Jesus fed the hungry. Why? Because they were hungry. Church, we need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe the naked. We need to proclaim the gospel, but sometimes we have to socially go out to a world that is hurting and dying and bring that relief which is necessary for them to hear and to see the love of God. Instead of just needing to be right, we need to live right. And Jesus is laying down a picture for us in these stories of what his kingdom is like. The question is, have you grasped that? Because see, his miracles reveal his authority, his miracles reveal his kingdom agenda to see his miracles should lead to a boldness to approach him. That's what verses one and two in this leper are about. It's about us. Because just real quick, let's, let's look at it. It says in verse one, and when he came, meaning Jesus, he's coming down the mountain and notice there's a great crowd with him. Who does not belong in a crowd? Verse two, the leper. How did he get there? Behold, notice verse two, a leper came and he knelt before him. So how do those two things fit? Now, first of all, Jesus is on the mountainside, so he's not in a city, so this is an area that lepers would live. And yet this leper is probably the outside of this crowd and he's listening in. And as he's listening in, he's wondering, is this for me? And so as he's approaching Jesus, he has to cry unclean. Everybody knows who he is. He's disheveled, his, tors, his clothes are torn, and he begins to approach Jesus, which means you and I start moving away, almost like the Red Sea starts to split. This leper is starting to walk towards Jesus and everyone else is saying, oh my goodness, how's he gonna respond? And see, nobody expects Jesus to do what he does because nobody believes in what Jesus just taught. <laughs> do you realize that? They don't get it. They're like, listen, leper, you're about to get it right now. Do not judge lest you be judged. They, they just heard that, but they're not gonna apply it. No, because that would be a little too much. And here comes this leper to Jesus and they're assuming he's gonna reject him. He's gonna rebuke him. Certainly the kingdom doesn't belong to him. And even the leper believes it because he says, if you're willing. And what does he do? He falls at his feet. Humility. And Jesus doesn't simply speak a word. He touches him. He reveals compassion where compassion was needed, not with a spoken word, but with a physical touch, which truly healed. Now his leprosy was healed, but his heart was transformed when he encountered the grace and the love of God in a way that he did not expect. But realize the vulnerability, guys, of a leper doing that. All those eyes on him, you ever, you ever been there? You've been in that crowd? 
Everyone's looking at you. You do not belong. You know, if you've never experienced that, that's God's privilege and grace in your life that you haven't been there. But he's in a place where everyone knows he does not belong. And what does he do? He has the courage to walk into that room exposed, naked, and vulnerable and saying, Jesus, I need you. That's my story. That is our story. All of us are unclean. Maybe not by leprosy, but instead by the brokenness in our life. And there is stuff in our life that we don't want to expose. We don't want anyone else to see because we're afraid of the judgment of the people around us. And yet this leper was willing to pour out his life to Jesus and Jesus was willing to touch him. And Matthew ends and concludes this section in verse 17 by reminding us of Isaiah 53. Because see, in Isaiah 53, as, Jesus, as Matthew is recording these words, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And what did, the Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That Jesus, as it goes on, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I have been healed. Why? Why? Because we all, like sheep, we all, like lepers, have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore our shame so that we could be covered in the Father's love. What is keeping you from approaching the Father and simply being honest with him? I wonder if it couldn't be that we just don't trust his authority. We don't believe who he is and what he's teaching us and what he's giving us. He's saying, listen, you can trust me. This is how my kingdom shows up. This is how my authority is manifest in your life. Church, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to trust him and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you as my savior. I need you as my teacher. I need you to cleanse me. And listen, church, God is still healing today. What he has done in the past, he is calling us to do as well. And sometimes the reason people aren't healed is because we don't pray. And God is calling us to go forth and to share the same grace and mercy towards those who feel like they're too far. And that could be you today. So let me pray for you. Father, to ask by your grace and your truth and your mercy, many of us, Father, I think have been in moments where we have felt the outcast, where we have been ashamed of our own life and our lifestyle, Father, where we've been ashamed of the duplicity, the hiding behind a mask, the pretending to be righteous, but on the inside, Lord, knowing that there is fear and anxiety, there is worry. Externally, we look strong. Internally, we are weak. Jesus, you came in weakness so that we might be strong. The incarnation, the coming, you came in human flesh and you died on a cross for us so that our brokenness might fall on you and your strength, your power, your authority might dwell in us, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And right now we're seated at the right hand of God the Father, which means there is no barrier between us and the fullness of your presence, but our pride and our refusal to admit our need for repentance. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of the Spirit, would you rush over us and allow us that are here today to be honest with you about what's going on in our life. 
the brokenness of our sin, our minds, the condition of our relationships, our attitudes towards those that are outside the church, our political enemies. Jesus, heal us and restore us. Allow us to know your grace extends far beyond our expectations because you rose from the dead so that through your resurrection, we might have new life. And that means a new way of seeing life. Help us, Father, heal us and allow us to be agents of your healing power and your salvation in the world. God, meet us, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.